This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I welcome our first returning guest, Jada Anderson of Xylo Systems. Xylo Systems is helping the property and energy industries understand their biodiversity impact. We talk about how the company and platform have focused in the last year, the highs and lows of running a company for the first time, how regulatory changes are incentivizing businesses to look at biodiversity, great brands that excel in the space, some tips for maximizing an accelerator experience, and finishing with a call to arms to protect our world. Please enjoy my discussion with Jada Anderson. All right, we welcome back our very first returning guest, Jada Anderson, one of the co-founders of Silo Systems. For any longtime fans of the show, Jada appeared as our fifth ever episode in season one. Jada, welcome back to the Promise Podcast. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. So glad to have you back. It's been just about a year, maybe a bit over a year since we last chatted. Can you give us a quick refresher on what Xylo does for anybody who hasn't heard the first episode or even those who have, and perhaps there might be some new developments that have taken place since? Yeah, sure. Xylo Systems, we consider ourselves a, a biodiversity intelligence platform. So what that means is we support businesses in helping them to understand their biodiversity impact. This happens in a few different ways, but we're primarily working with the property development sector as well as the energy infrastructure sector. They are industries that are having really tangible, direct impacts on biodiversity. And when I talk about biodiversity, I'm talking about the makeup of nature. So the the combination of species and habitats that we have that we consider nature. And we're now facing a huge crisis when it comes to preserving biodiversity in the long term. We're seeing rapid decline in species and habitats. And we need a way for businesses to quantify that impact and have active protection of that habitat. And so what our platform does is identify on an asset level for a particular project, you can do a baseline biodiversity assessment of what is the existing biodiversity on that site, as well as identify some of the crucial species and habitat types that are present that you need to protect on site. And that gives you actionable strategies to then take forward in the planning process so that you can make sure that biodiversity is being considered a priority throughout the life of the project. Since we last chat, there's been quite a few developments. I think by the time we were talking, we'd actually just done a big pivot to work primarily with the corporate sector. Previously, we've been working primarily with the conservation sector. And so since then, we've really leapt into what does it look like to be a corporate reporting and ESG tool that's involved a whole bunch of validation with specifically property development and energy infrastructure and done a bunch of trial projects with some pretty big players in both of those spaces to really understand what are the core needs for those types of users and iterated on our product. So from January onwards this year, 2023, we have been building our new platform, which we released about a month ago now to the, the wider world. And so now people can demo the product and create their own asset level projects 
and start doing those baseline assessments, which speak to a whole bunch of larger international frameworks and compliance tools that are coming out quite quickly these days. Wonderful. What a comprehensive overview. And firstly, congratulations on the launch of your new platform. What can you do now that you couldn't do beforehand? A lot's happened in the last 12 months iterating on product. Previously, we were kind of taking a consulting approach in that we were working quite closely with users, and we continue to, but before it was really understanding the company level use case for a project. So an example was a user would come to us with, for example, an urban renewal project with a specific site that they wanted to assess. And we did a lot of the the actual assessment process in a relatively manual way to understand what kind of data sets do we need and how can we transform this data into a way that's useful for users. It was very much on a per user, per project basis that we we're really understanding that use case. And I think that's for all startups out there listening to that, that's really important to do the things that don't scale first so you can understand the priorities. And since then, now that we've gotten quite confident with what are the recurring themes that we're seeing across all the trial projects that we did, we've developed a platform which is much more self-service. So as an organization, you can develop an organization level account in the Xylo platform and you can generate projects. So you can define the boundaries of your projects. And in the background, we automatically scrape all of the data that we have available that project and you can have an exploration of that data yourself so you don't need us to sort of hold your hand through that process. One that's made things a lot more scalable for us, we can have much greater impact across a range of different organizations. But we've also increased the complexity of the actual data sets and interface that users can look at as well. If you looked at the platform, there's kind of two major components. There's a map, uh, which gives us an overlay of all the spatial data that we have available. That includes species sightings. So you can go down to the species level and understand exactly what has been detected on the site. But we're also integrating habitat layers as well. So you can see the combination of species and habitats and understand what is the existing biodiversity from a spatial point of view. And then alongside that, we have metrics. So this is something that will iterate and continue to iterate quite a lot with the industry frameworks that are coming out. But we have a biodiversity index, which communicates the health and the, the diversity of species in the area. But we also have identified some key threats or threatening processes to species as well. For example, if you were a property development site and you created an asset project in our platform, you might see that we've identified habitat loss as a really big threat to biodiversity in that region. And so that then tells you that you have to be really cautious about what land you're clearing and what kind of habitat do you need to be providing if you're doing any kind of vegetation planting? So it's sort of this combination of exploring the data that we have available, but then transmuting that into actionable strategies that you can take. And all of that, as I mentioned, is, is self-service now. So it's been really exciting to see users start to play with the data on their own and come to some conclusions that are really helping them make decisions to prioritize nature in their process and planning. Wonderful. And maybe this goes back to what you're saying about upcoming regulatory changes that might potentially incentivize people like property developers. But if we were to just like look at the world around us right now, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world. Well, there's war happening. There's lots of cost of living crises. How have you actually gone about convincing people that you might actually want to take biodiversity seriously in addition to all of this other stuff? It's the ultimate question, I think, particularly from a startup point of view. It's essential, one, for our mission, but also for the survival of our startup to actually get people to really grapple with the problem that we're trying to solve. I think on an individual level, most people that we talk to about biodiversity and nature, they're like, 
We get it. We understand that nature is important. I think that's a fundamental thing to humans. We understand this relationship to nature and why it is important in many respects. But I think the thing that we've really had to combat is less on the individual level and much more about the corporate and the private sector level of how can we actually, even if all of these individuals understand the importance, how do we actually make a business recognize that importance? And that's required global change in terms of how we rethink ESG. You know, I think um, the Ian ESG has always been carbon and climate change focused, less so nature focused. And so when we talk about convincing people to take biodiversity seriously, it really is much more about how can we get enough momentum so that we can have some frameworks in place that incentivize businesses to prioritize nature. And so we've seen a whole bunch, and this is particularly given in the last year since we had a conversation, some really big events have happened. I think just after we chat, COP happened last year. And so that was a huge step forward in developing the global biodiversity framework. We've also had the task force for nature-related financial disclosures. We had a similar thing for carbon a few years ago that provided a framework that's really starting to get much more specific now and concrete for businesses to report and disclose their impact on nature. It's been a draft mode for the last couple of years, but about, I think it was about six weeks ago, we had the final version one released. And so that's led to a whole bunch of businesses across many different industries starting to pilot the framework and actually start to incorporate nature in their ESG reporting. And finally, also national legislation. You know, we've seen lots of conversations since COP and since TNFD really starting to put pressure on governments to include nature in the reporting framework as well. So the combination of all these things is we've seen huge momentum and change in the nature of conversations around nature as well. Previously, we were trying to push the point of why nature is important and why it makes sense financially in the long term. But now it's happening. It's gotten enough momentum that this is a conversation that we have quite easily with lots of businesses now. Rather than trying to tell them why, we're telling them how. And that's been really, really exciting to see those trickle-down effects to industry standards and compliance bodies as well. Awesome. Okay. So in, in the last year, there's obviously been all of these developments in the regulatory space. And you just mentioned that that's added some clarity to a lot of companies who are focusing on ESG. So I'm curious if you're aware of any competitors that have emerged, because when we first spoke, like you said, you were really targeting the academia space. And from memory, it was quite a different proposition to where you are now. So have any competitors emerged? If so, what would your point of difference be? I think given the mission, I don't actually see many similar businesses as competitors. I think we need lots of momentum in this space. So the fact that we're seeing lots of businesses coming out specifically identifying as nature tech or addressing the nature problem is, is in my eyes, a really good thing. What we are seeing, though, is many sort of similar solutions come up, especially now that COP and TNFD have come through. There is this real need for how a business is going to start aggregating all this information to then disclose their impact. We've seen similar organizations dealing with data and reporting for nature. But I think the interesting thing and part of the benefit of having competitors, if you like, in this industry is that we're all approaching it in a slightly different way. When we think about biodiversity, there's actually lots of different definitions or lots of different ways of prioritizing certain aspects of nature and biodiversity. And so we're seeing approaches with certain types of data and really emphasizing, for example, things like eDNA. There's a few really big biodiversity data platforms focusing on eDNA. So for people who don't know, that's um, essentially like a COVID test, but for species detection in the environment. So you can do a really quick test for DNA 
and identify species that have been detected on a site. That's one way of doing kind of reporting and identifying biodiversity. But I think when we talk about like our point of difference, what we've really focused on is being really industry specific. A lot of the other um, competitors that we're seeing are focusing on this massive problem and the fact that all of these businesses have to start doing this disclosure. But the problem, and I think part of the unique challenge of dealing with nature disclosures is that each business has its own relatively unique interface or impact on nature. We've been able to be really specific with our user flow and particularly when developing the product, been really specific to that energy and property use case to make sure that we can meet them where they're at and really help them through that process of developing a nature strategy and then actually reporting on it. It's going to be a whole different challenge for supply chains. I know some nature tech companies are tackling it, but it's a completely different use case to a a property developer, for example. And so that's something that we've been really specific with and we haven't really seen any other um, businesses specifically tackling those industries. But also thinking about that bigger picture of the data. I think a lot of people are thinking about this kind of startup that we're trying to build as like a, a race to who has the most data sets. I think it's less about quantity of data and more about quality of data. And so we really focused on aggregating high quality open source data sets, but then also integrating remote sensing that can boost and actually add really important context to that open source data. So like I said, there's so many different approaches to this and they're all really beneficial. I think we're all really learning a lot from each other in this space and to hopefully then have a really meaningful impact on the businesses that we're working with. Yeah, wonderful. And speaking of learnings in this space, I want to hear about what your last year has been like. If you were to look back from when we last recorded to now, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you yourself or the company uh, have faced? So much. This was my first startup and it's, they really do describe it as a roller coaster and it, it, it certainly feels like that. Some days are easy breezy and other days feel like you're, yeah, you're digging a hole to, to the middle of nowhere. So, um, from on a personal level, I think, you know, I think last time I was calling myself chief product officer, I've now taken the role of chief technology officer, which has meant that I've had to step more into a tech focus role. And I've actually really embraced that. It's been hugely challenging. I have a background in maps and, and coding, but that does not speak to software engineering and all of the other technical components that go into actually building a software platform. There's been a huge amount of learning just from a personal level, actually building the product myself, but now also working with a tech team and leading others to build the product as well. Yeah, so much within that, but that's been a hugely enriching experience and and something that I'm really excited to continue on this journey with. I'm sure it will get more and more complex as the product gets more and more complex as well. But I think from a business level, we have learned so much about working directly with corporates. You know, Camille and I, we don't come from this corporate sector so much. We do come from academia and conservation. And so working directly and selling to corporates has been a really new experience. It's been positive in many ways because we are working with or selling to sustainability managers and many of them understand what we do or have come from the same place as us, which is really positive. But I think we're in a position now where we've got a product that can service a need that we've been trying to address for a long time. But it's now about keeping up with the momentum and the frameworks that are developing on a global level. We have so many frameworks coming out now, and I've mentioned them before, you know, TNFD, but also industry standard ones like Green Star. And they're all iterating really quickly because we are seeing this demand for nature now. 
And it means that we've got to keep up from a product perspective and from a business perspective to make sure that we are addressing all those things that are getting updated. That's been quite challenging given we're still relatively a small team, but really exciting because this momentum is something that we really want to continue. We don't want to slow the momentum at all. So it's just about keeping up from a product perspective. Got it. Okay. Thanks for sharing the challenges, by the way. I can only imagine what they are as someone who hasn't tried the same things as you have. Now, I'm curious, on the flip side, if we look at successes, any wins that you might have had over the last year, what's, what's been the best success story that you've had? So many, really. It's, it's been a, a year of learning for us. And in many ways, I, I count that as a huge success. I really think we've been quite dynamic and flexible in how we've approached all the things that have changed over the last 12 months. I think we've had so many incredible customer discovery interactions, trials with some really large players, which has been a huge win from a product and a, a user story kind of perspective of really understanding the people that we're, we're working with. But I think a big success, and I can't name the, the company at the moment because it's still in progress, but we've actually signed a really large global customer on a yearly subscription. So that's, I think, something we've been working really hard to achieve with building this product, but where we've actually, you know, gotten to the point where we're signing annual subscription customers now, which is super, super exciting. Now, when we last spoke, one of your goals in that interview, and I'm pretty sure you're on record saying this, is that you want to design yourselves out of existence, basically, because it means you've solved the biodiversity problem. Now, I'm curious if that definition of success has actually changed. Good question. And... I remember saying that. I think upon further reflection since then, that there will always be a need for businesses like ours to maintain nature as a priority. I think if a business like ours disappeared, then we probably would go back to business as usual. I'd like to think that we're a business that could, if we you know, design and build ourselves successfully, be one that can actually last forever. So almost the opposite in that we become ingrained in the solution. We become ingrained in how businesses operate. So absolutely, I think the measure for success has changed, but it's not that our mission has changed. It's just about how we see ourselves growing into the future, because ultimately the mission is to make sure that nature is a priority. And if that includes us in it, that's great. But I think both Camille and I are mission driven. And so it's less about where we are in terms of valuation, for example. But I think to actually have a really big impact, we've got to have scale and growth. And so that means being around and having an impact with some really large players as well. Fantastic. Well, actually, I didn't congratulate you earlier on on the contract. Hopefully, I can shout it out from the rooftops when you do sign it and publicize it. But just on that with major players, if you were to look around you right now, what are some of your favorite brands? who are doing right by biodiversity, who's doing business right, who's doing branding right in this space, and legitimately so rather than just greenwashing? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one that we've actually been thinking about quite a lot recently. We're part of a biodiversity accelerator run by Silverstrand Capital, family office based out of uh, Singapore. And through that process, we've actually been looking at the process for um, becoming a B Corp. We're still in the, the early stages of discovering what it would look like to become a B Corp, but through that process have really understand what is the standard for becoming a B Corp and, and what does that look like. And it's been really interesting looking at that process to then see businesses that we have typically admired to see if they really are greenwashing or if they really have true impact. 
So that that's a bit of a side note. But I think when we think about brands that are hailing biodiversity well, we're, we're going to see so many more coming into the future. And I think the way we think about biodiversity is going to change quite dramatically from a corporate level, but also from a, like a consumer level. Like our expectations of how biodiversity is considered should change just like it has for businesses becoming net zero, for example. So specific ones, I mean, Patagonia is just a, a business that I really look up to and have learned a lot from for a, a few different reasons. I think they are really are a leader in advocacy through storytelling and education. I think the impact that they've had on customers through their activism and their filmmaking is extraordinary. It really has made people, even though it's a consumer-led company, really think about their impact, which is huge. They also partner with local organizations, you know, conservation organizations, social organizations to have impact in a really meaningful way on a local scale. And they actually also invest in startups that have initiatives, one, to make Patagonia and the textiles manufacturing process more sustainable, but also through other initiatives like biodiversity through their Tin Shed Ventures um, branch of Patagonia as well. So they kind of tick all those boxes for me in terms of really trying to do everything that they can to have an impact. And I'm sure they'll start looking at biodiversity reporting in their process soon as well, if they're not already. Another one that I've got to mention, because we are huge supporters of them and always like to mention them because they are so supportive of our mission and we are of them as well, is Wilderlands. They allow businesses and individuals to purchase parcels of land that will be managed by Wilderlands for regeneration in perpetuity. Huge fans of them, both the team, that they're absolutely legends, but also just their impact, I think, is really meaningful. One square meter at a time, we really can start um, protecting land for a long, long time. So that's just two, but I'm sure there's many more that will uh, come out of the woodwork very, very soon. Yeah, but for now, a great shout out to Patagonia, everybody already knew, I guess. But to anybody who hasn't heard of Wilderlands, go check them out. I'll stick a link in the show notes as well. Okay, as we wrap up a year in review with Xylo Systems, what is something that happened which has been totally, totally unexpected? Like came out of the blue, total Black Swan event, if any come to mind. I don't know about event, but I think there's been a lot of learning about how industry currently does reporting which has kind of blown my mind that's changed the way that we recognize the role of legislation in reporting on nature. I've got a bit of a a factlet that I came across the other day, but it's 7.7 million hectares of land cleared in Australia. That's the total amount of land that's been cleared in Australia. And 93% of it did not require any sort of approval or consideration of reducing their impact on nature. 93% of land, you know, we make this assumption that property developers and these industries that are clearing land have to go through considerable approvals, but the vast majority of land that's been cleared has not required any sort of significant approval. And that kind of blown my mind because it really shows that if we can put approvals in place, it will mean that we can be much more thoughtful with how we interface with land and land use and make sure that we can um, be really conscious with the impact that we have. So Yeah, I'm sure there's been many, but it's just kind of that part of maybe that startup exposure where everything is a black swan event, but also nothing's a black swan event. But the learnings that we've had have been really, really significant. And that's really changed the way that we think about, again, from a product perspective, how we grow, but also how we educate users of the platform as well to realize the the long-term vision that we could have if we really consider nature as a priority. Fantastic. Okay. Now you've mentioned that 
Zilu are part of another accelerator based out of Singapore. When we first met, you were just about wrapping up the StartMate Accelerator here in Australia. As we record this, the applications are currently open, and I think by the time we release this episode, they will close. Do you have any advice for companies who are successful in getting in, any advice on getting through the accelerator? Yeah, plenty. I mean, it, I think if we're talking specifically about StartMate, I can be quite specific, but I think perhaps just generally first about accelerators is that be really specific with the intended outcome that you want. I think as startups, you're probably going through accelerators at different stages. There are many that are just, if you have an idea and helping you get to the next steps, there's some that help you scale, there's some that get you that initial validation. But I think being really conscious of what is the stage you're in and what's the intended outcome you want means that you can be really strategic with how you spend your time during Accelerator. Because for example, Startmate, although it was relatively lengthy in that it was a few months long, it went by so fast because we were working so hard. And it, it's fantastic because the growth that you have in Accelerator and the way that you're pushed is really, really significant. But you need to have a direction and a plan for how you're going to use that time, particularly given that lots of accelerators pair you up with mentors. And I know that Startmate definitely does. They give you advisors and mentors to guide you through that process. But being strategic with who you have as a mentor and advisor and how you ask them questions really means that you can get the best out of that experience and, and make sure that you're coming out of that with a direction and momentum that you can carry on after the accelerator as well. So that's a, a generalized one. But particularly for Startmate, like I can speak to the absolute support and the network that you get with Startmate is like no other I've ever experienced. Coming from academia into the startup world, Startmate really provides you with support, both through fellow founders, but also through investors and people who've been there and done that before. It's absolutely crucial. You can't do this alone. It really does take a village. And and Startmate can really provide you with that village to take your next steps and continue growing. I think it's one of those things where we have a tendency, particularly, maybe I'm generalizing, but particularly as Australians, I think, to not ask for help. And I think it's one of those things that you have to kind of learn, particularly through accelerators like this, to lean on other people and ask people when you're stuck um, because you learn so, so much through other people's learned mistakes and successes as well. Wonderful. A shout out to the Startmate crew and uh, anybody who's applying for the Accelerator. Now, on the topic of Accelerator, the one that you're currently in, and the goal setting that you've just mentioned, what do you hope to come out of this Accelerator with? The application process was through sort of June, so it was, it was only a few months ago, but at the time, we were really looking to understand what our platform could do in an international context. And with Silverstrand being based in Singapore, but also with connections to the US and other major international markets, our intention was to really connect with one other biodiversity accelerator companies that are based internationally and understand how they're tackling it in their home countries, but also use the Silverstrand network to understand and start exploring the US market. At the time of application, I was also in the UK. So really trying to understand what do these other countries currently think about biodiversity and how they're having those conversations and what would it look like for us to start expanding into those other markets. So that's been really helpful. We are still in the middle of that and I think it's something that we want to really make sure that we're being quite strategic with 
where we expand to next, but it's a really exciting prospect and, and the accelerator has been really helpful with us to go through that scoping phase. Awesome. Well, maybe, maybe my next question will help with that a little bit. Just hypothetically, if you had 10 times the budget that you currently do now, what would you do right away? So much. <laughs> I think the next stage for us is growing our team. We've worked really hard as quite a small team for quite a while now, given what we've built. So we definitely want to expand our team as soon as we have a bit more capital to, one, expand our potential to build the product and expand the, the capacity faster, but also from a sales perspective as well. Particularly if we're going to be looking at taking this global from day one approach, we need salespeople who can speak to international markets in a way that we just don't have the capacity to right now. So I definitely think it's growing the team, which is super exciting because it means that we can have bigger impact. And we've also, again, been exposed through communities like Startmate, had so many fantastic and passionate people reach out to us saying they want to work with us. And so we haven't had the capacity until very, very soon when we raise a bit more capital. So that will all be coming very soon. Wonderful. Okay. Finally, as we wrap up the conversation, let's imagine that this is a wildly popular podcast and the whole world is tuning in and you've got the attention of the whole world for five minutes. What would you want to say to them? Big question. Big question, Sean. Dropping bombs at the end of the show. I love it. I love it. I think I'd want to distill that everything happening in the world today from political turmoil to health crises and social change, whilst all interrelated and very much connected to the health of our environment, will all be irrelevant if we don't protect our home planet. We often identify the symptoms of biodiversity loss, you know, habitat loss, pollution, invasive species, etc. But we very rarely touch on the core reason as to why it's happening. And that's our disconnection to nature. We see ourselves as separate from nature when we are very much a part of nature and we're suffering because of biodiversity loss, just like all other species are. We think about air quality decline, water quality decline, food accessibility and supply and so on. And so on an individual level, there's a lot we can do. And as I mentioned before, I think a lot of individuals get it. But up until now, there hasn't been a playbook for what businesses can do. And because the primary role of a business is to make money, we need tools and structures in place to incentivize businesses to make it a priority and to see that long-term financial benefit that preserving and restoring ecosystems can provide. And so both from a supply and ecosystem service role, but also a management and reduction of risk perspective, we need to make nature a priority at all levels and focus on regenerating high ecological value regions that are currently in decline. And that's a, absolutely you know, a collective effort, both from an individual level, we are all responsible, but we also need to start making businesses responsible because they are having a huge impact and we, we all need to do that together. Wonderful. What a powerful way to end the show. Jada, thank you so much for stopping by yet again. The last thing, as usual, I'll get you to do is to share any social media contact info that you have, um, especially because you also have a podcast now we as do, well. We do, yes. You can check out our podcast. We've done our first season. We'll have a second season coming out relatively soon. It's called The Nature Positive Network. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about what Xylo Systems is doing, see our platform and get a demo from us, you can find us at our website, which is www.xylo.systems. 
And if you want to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to have a chat with anyone who's interested in what we're doing in the space that we're working with. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn, just Jada Anderson. Wonderful. All the links in the show notes as usual. Jada, thank you once again for stopping by. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is Promise.